Nick Lavery was living an all-American dream. He grew up in Boston and played college football. But on 9-11, like for millions of Americans, everything changed. And Nick knew he had to do more for his country. He had to give more. Part of his giving more story would include his leg. His story of service before self and perseverance to pick up the six, it will inspire you. I'm Brian Jodis, back again for Pick Up the Six Podcast. Nick Lavery, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brian. Great to be here, man. Man, I am pumped to have you uh, to share this story about service before self, strength of purpose. I love when good friends are able to connect people who have never met before, but we jump on this thing. And, man, I feel like I've known you for years, and I'm sure by the time we're done, we'll feel even more so. Brother, first and foremost, just thank you so much for everything you've done for our great nation, everything you continue to do. I know our listeners are excited to hear from you today as well, too. I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. So listen, man, you're growing up, you know, living this sort of all-American life, right? Kid who, you know, feels his pull to the military, but is going through college. And then that fateful Tuesday happens, that day of 9-11, where the whole world changes. And I know you were service-minded even before that, but what happened on that day that really changed that and accelerated that for you, Nick? Yeah, on that day, man, obviously I'll never forget sophomore year of college and I'm walking to class and uh, the entire student body is heading back towards the dorms. I stopped some some dude. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, yeah, all the classes have been canceled. And I'm immediately excited. Like, oh, hell yeah, no class, yeah. perfect. I head back to the dorm, right? I'm ready to just enjoy my day. I kick on the TV and everything's on the same channel. And in that moment, you know, my whole world kind of flipped up upside down obviously took a few hours a few days to figure out what was going on uh and like you said brian i kind of i kind of was looking towards the military you know through high school and almost drawn to it at in my early age um but in that moment that was you know the nail in the coffin per se where i was convinced we were going to war and i wanted to be a part of that i really struggled with staying in school uh, I was ready to drop out right there. And then I happened to listen to some mentors and some friends of mine um, who convinced me to stay and finish out my degree, which I did, uh, grinded that out. And then as soon as I graduated, man, I was looking at options to enlist. I remember talking to my dad that night. He was commanding uh, NJEP, Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program, Shepherd Air Force Base. And the words he said to me that night were, the world has changed forever. The world has changed forever. And it had. Yeah. Man, the, 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 to feel the pull that day and to, like you said, grind it out for two years, but knowing probably what awaited you. Why'd you end up in the Army? Probably had options, right? You know, could have gone a couple different directions. Why the Army? Why Special Forces? Yeah, the, the, short, the short answer to the question, Brian, is the 18 X-ray contract, uh, which gives guys and today now gals off the street the opportunity to go straight to SS and I don't come from a really robust military family so it was just research and learning uh, I knew I wanted to go into special operations mm -hmm. I felt like my physical capabilities uh, were best suited there and I wanted to make the most impact a single human being can make so like most young kids uh, I was drawn to the Navy SEALs right they're kind of the at the top of the heat in terms of soft, they're very well known. So I walked into a recruiter building that had the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. And I walked into the Navy office, had a quick conversation. At, at that point, they didn't have an option to go straight to BUDS. Nowadays they do. And they said, yeah, cool, sounds good. You know, we'll, we'll enlist you into the Navy and then you can request to go be a SEAL. I said, okay, cool, thanks, appreciate it. I left, went down the hall, talked to the Marine Corps recruiter, got the exact same answer landed in the army office they presented me the 18 x-ray contract as an option um so i said great thank you i went home i did some research on what was best suited for me and while that did give me the opportunity to go straight into sf um it ended up being what i felt was the better fit for me mm -hmm. to go into S the army sf program um based primarily on just a wide range of of mission sets that odas have and um, I was drawn to that. So, it, you know, it was a combination of having the right feel in terms of what the mission is and speed to actually mm -hmm. get there. Yeah, to kind of get it moving. You talked about not having that robust military family background. What was 
the family's reaction like? My, my gut tells me they knew this was coming based on those last two years of college. But what was the reaction to signing up and, and to go pursue this incredibly hard and dangerous thing? Yeah, um, although I had voiced it, you know, post 9-11, I don't think either of my parents or anyone in my extended family really thought I would do it. So when I presented this to them as a as the way forward, um, it was met with resistance. And, uh, you know, my father, who's we're not that far in age, he's, you know, one of my best friends flat out told me you're not enlisting. And I'm 24 years old. I just graduated college. You know, I'm a grown ass man. And, and here's my father basically telling me, like, yeah. no, you're grounded. Uh, you're, you're not going into the army. Um, it's ironic because, you know, he's now my biggest fan and he's all into what, what you know, what I do, what we do. Um, he's obviously very proud. Um, but yeah, man, it was met with resistance. And then once they realized that this was happening, then obviously concern and fear and worry kind of set in because, you know, they can see what's going on. They knew where I was going. They knew where I wanted to go. And, you know, now as a father of two young boys, I can put myself in that position where at the time, you know, it's tough, man, until you've been there and, you know, it, it, it's it's impossible to truly know what that's like. You don't want to protect your children. Mm -hmm. uh, so I give them a lot of credit for for supporting me with something that they really weren't excited about. And, you know, they still do it to this day, man. I give them a lot of credit. And it's part of that journey, right? You want to provide guidance, leadership inside your own household, but you know, at some point you're going to have to, to let them go. And right, they're going to have right. to go make those decisions. It's a decision you made and you started to pursue. I don't want to gloss over the journey to special forces and the journey that leads up to deployment because there's so much that goes into it. But, but, I, but I know that once you got into the teams and once you got into that first deployment, I heard you say that you really caught the bug for the job when you were deployed in the team atmosphere doing what you guys were doing. What does that mean? What do you mean you caught the bug for the job on a deployment like that? Yeah, man. So my, my initial plan was to come in, go to SF. You know, I signed a five-year active contract and then get out and go into some other government sector. I was really drawn to the Secret Service and the mm -hmm. work of that type of protective detail. So that was the original mission. Um, once I got in, I got on that first trip to Afghanistan. It was a nine-month pump. Um, that was when it changed from being kind of a lily pad uh, to jump off of. And it extended beyond that of a job to that of a profession. And I became obsessed with what we do and how we do it and the brotherhood that exists on the teams. And uh, I was I was just completely enthralled by that. And, uh, you know, following that trip, I was just all in. And that's all I wanted to do. That's all I did. I was, uh, I was in the gym, on the track, in the fight house, on the range. Uh, reading manuals. Uh, my goal was to be the best SF operator I could be and provide as much value to, to the guys to my left and right. Did you find when you were back home, when, when you were out of the fray, just longing for it, missing it, want, wanting to get back as quickly as possible? Yeah. Uh, the short answer is yes. And, you know, back at, back in the day, right, which I say now that I'm an old crusty guy, uh, we didn't have that much time in between deployments, right? Mm -hmm. Our op tempo was crazy. And I yeah, started off in third group. Back and forth. We were churning and burning, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm in fifth group now. I started out in third group and third group kind of owned Afghanistan. Um, and it was just go, 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 right? Nine on, six off, six on, six off. There wasn't a lot of time back in the rear. So you know, it was coming up quick. And I was just in completely engrossed in individual schools, collective training, team training, PNT. I mean, it went by really, really fast. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm back in Afghanistan on, on my next trip. We're going to talk about uh, the combat wound uh, and the attack that ultimately cost you your leg. Before that, you know, multiple deployments, probably a lot of hairy scenarios, but also a lot of heroes along the way, man, that are part of your team and your teammates and, and guys that picked up your six along the way. So tell me a little bit about some of those first few deployments before that real fateful day physically for you and, and, uh, and some of the things that, that you saw and some of the heroes along the way that, that are part of your story. Yeah. So my, my second deployment, my second combat rotation anyway to Afghanistan was the one when I was wounded and ultimately ended up losing my leg. So I had just the one prior, okay. um, like I said, nine months and we're operating primarily in Kandahar and, um, we had a really interesting mission um, because we were doing a lot of different things. I spoke on that kind of wide range of 
of SF core tasks or missions that we're expected to do. And on that team and on that trip, we were responsible for um, conducting activities in a variety of different mission sets. Whereas my second trip and, and trips after that, you know, we were DA focused, CT, counterterrorism focused. So it opened my eyes to a lot of these different facets that SF teams are responsible to do and then actually executing them. Um, from low visibility type operations to, you know, driving around up armored Matt V's with, you know, with guns sticking out of the trucks. So I got that full range. We were also running split team operations as well, which is kind of an entirely, you know, different dynamic when you split that team. And now you've got, you know, different leadership that is running the show. You've got a much smaller footprint. So everyone in that split team dynamic where instead of having 10 or 12, now you've got five or six, everyone has to adapt beyond their actual MOS because there's just not enough bodies to go around where it's like, oh, here's this issue. We'll go get the medic. Here's this issue. Go get the engineer. Go get the combo guy. You may not have all of those people around. So I had to learn really fast Mm -hmm. outside of my scope of being an 18 Bravo, which is what I was at the time, you know, where those are the weapons guys, where I had to do a lot of cross training and learn from my teammates um, and they were phenomenal. You know, I was the new kid on the block. I was an E5 straight out of the course, uh, you know, no prior military. So I had a lot of learning to do. So it was really just hunker down, work your ass off, um, keep your mouth shut and pay attention and learn fast. And, you know, the guys I was with were phenomenal. I stay in touch with most of them to this day. And uh, I know I'm grateful for the, the foundation that those guys really built into me. There's a moment uh, that I've heard you speak about where you're part of a, I think you guys are a convoy or something. And basically three, 400 pound IED just absolutely blows up the vehicle that's in front of you. And you see that vehicle go flying through the air and guys are flying through the air with it. Take me back into that moment. I mean, cause that was a pretty hairy situation. Um, take me back into that moment if you don't mind. Yeah, man, that was my second uh, deployment to Afghanistan. And in between my first trip, and my second trip, I switched teams and went to a direct action focused team. So uh, we all knew what kind of environment we were going into. We were in Wardak province in Afghanistan, which has been and is today one of the hottest zones throughout history. Um, And it proved to be just that. I mean, we got there and it was game on right when we got there. I had been wounded once before. A lot of my teammates have been wounded uh, prior to this event that we're talking about now. And yeah, the, the the quick version of the story is I was in the trail vehicle. I was operating out of a hatch. So I'm looking outward from the roof and our lead vehicle uh, just gets decimated by an IED. And we're talking about a Mat V, which is not a light vehicle. And it picked this thing up and just tossed it off the side of the road like a rag doll. And yeah, you know, I see a couple bodies flying through the air. They're obviously my friends. Um, and, you know, we can talk about this for a while, but I'll just touch on, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't respond the way I was trained to, um, which is, you know, we have react to IED SOPs that we drill and drill and drill. And there's a reason why we train the way we do. Um, I was overcome by love for my teammates and essentially abandoned that SOP, which is not something I'm proud of. I actually used this vignette as, as something of what not to do, uh, a difficult lesson learned. I essentially jump out of the hatch, vehicle still moving. I jump off to the under the ground. I take off in a dead sprint. You know, it's probably about a 400 meter, 300 meter distance between us and the truck. Um, I get there. The truck had gotten knocked off the side of the road on its driver's side, passenger side doors to the is to the sky. I'm I know with certainty everyone's dead. I mean, the explosion was that catastrophic. So I'm expecting to roll up onto you know a bunch of bodies, and I trip and I fall. As I'm making my way towards the truck, it's about 25 meters away from me. And what I had tripped on was actually one of my teammates mm-hmm. who was the gunner in that truck. I, I'm in shock, uh, probably more in shock than he is. He's alive. Uh, he's incoherent. You know, he's got immediate blast injuries. His leg is snapped in half. And um, I do a quick assessment of him. And then we start getting engaged from some, from some, uh, from some threats pretty close to us. Uh, so I make a difficult decision to leave my friend. Um, I handled that problem and the one of them was kind of moving away from me at an angle and I'll never forget it's crystal clear shooting at me over his shoulder while kind of running on an angle and I'm maneuvering through this apple orchard and next thing you know I'm on my ass and I'm staring up at the sky and I had thought I had run into a branch um, because it was a relatively thick orchard 
And it turns out that he clipped me in the face with um, an AK round. It just grazed my cheek. It sounds a lot worse than it was. Um, and although I wanted to continue the pursuit of that target, uh, I realized that I hadn't checked the vehicle. And at this point, the vehicle was on fire and flames are moving from the rear of the cab towards the driver's uh, area. I had no idea if anyone was inside. Thankfully, the passenger door, which is now facing the sky, had been blown off the hinges. Those doors are about 800 pounds a piece. And it was the only entry point I had. So I climbed up, looked in, and our detachment commander was still in the vehicle. And he was actually on the radio looking to make comms with Haya, which is just amazing. And wow. he's completely banged up, bad. The vehicle's on fire. Rounds inside the vehicle are, are cooking off. We're within a complex ambush. So we've got PKM and RPG. It's a, a nasty situation, yeah. but he's still doing his job, which is just phenomenal. It says a lot about him as an individual. It says a lot about the way we train. Um, so I managed to get him up and out. Support showed up. Uh, we handled the problem. I, as crazy as it sounds, no one was killed that day. Uh, there were six people inside that vehicle, all of which were, of course, medevaced. Um, myself eventually was medevaced, although I didn't, I didn't want to, I threw a bit of a temper tantrum, um, on the objective while, uh, right. my medic is insisting I get in a helicopter, but I waited, QRF came up, we got the situation under control. And then you know, eventually I went on, went on to a helicopter and, uh, and flew up for some medical treatment for my face. It's gotta be amazing, man. That moment where you, you look in and he's in there just plugging away, right? I mean, there's all hell on earth being rained down on you guys. And he is just continuing to do his job yeah powerful man it's powerful the way that all goes down uh and that's what separates the united states of america from many other nations if not all of them around the globe is that tenacity that fight right the ability of our war fighters to continue to do their job fall back on their training all right so later in that deployment part of what you guys have to do other than engaging bad guys right fighting bad guys all over afghanistan is training up the next fighter training up Afghan soldiers, training up Afghan police. And on the fateful day where the leg is lost, it's an Afghan soldier that turns on you guys and ultimately starts gunning down you and your buddy. So what happened on that day? Yeah. So this is towards the tail end of our trip. We only had a few weeks left and we were doing a joint mission with Afghan national police, Afghan national army, some Afghan local police, and then our organic Afghan National S Army SF team, which they were embedded with us. And this wasn't anything new. Um, a lot of lessons to be learned from this vignette as well, particularly given the relationship uh, development and maintenance between your partner force. And when you have units of, of that size and you're constantly getting new people that are rotating in, it makes it really, really challenging to get to know these people. And if you don't have a baseline to go off of, it's impossible to determine if something is off, right? So the, the spidey sense can't go off if you don't have that baseline. Mm -hmm. um, but we had been used to this and we had been training these guys throughout the trip. Um, we were doing our final uh, pre-mission brief. We're in our motor pool. Uh, we're doing our final comms checks. And um, me being somewhat the insubordinate soldier that I was, as soon as my radio was up, I, I turned away from the group and I started walking towards my truck. And as I'm walking away is when, uh, when I hear the rounds go off behind me. And my initial thought was that one of our Afghan partners just, you know, AD'd their weapon, just accidentally discharged their weapon, which wouldn't be unheard of that that happens. After the third, fourth, fifth consecutive round, which I now know is coming from a machine gun, um, I, I realized that someone's engaging intentionally, whether it's at us or not. And, you know, it's crazy how, how time just slows way yeah. down in those moments. And every second feels like an hour, especially in retrospect. Um, so I'm pretty close to my vehicle. I do have another vehicle that's right next to me that would serve as some cover. And here, once again, um, nothing to be proud of. I, I don't do as I'm trained. And in this in this particular vignette is the result of it is something that I have to live with because what I'm trained to do, what we're trained to do is move the cover and eliminate the threat. That's what, that's what you do. And I had the opportunity to do that. However, I did it because as I continue to glance back and I'm getting a, I'm, I'm putting the situation within context, one of our infantry uplift soldiers who was there with us as support, who was set to be a driver force for that particular operation 
um, was just standing there kind of like a deer in headlights. And he's not more than 15 feet from, from this gunner. So I moved to him, you know, instinct takes over, love takes over. I don't do what I'm trained to do. And uh, I basically tackle him un unintentionally, but I'm moving so fast. And I, I end up on top of him. And kind of while we're falling to the ground is when I feel that first round hit my hit the back of my leg. I take a couple more as I'm as I'm on the ground on top of this kid. Uh, I drag him and myself behind another vehicle. And that was when um, right around there is when one of my teammates um, eliminated that threat. It was the initiation of a complex ambush. So we started taking fires from outside of our compound, rockets, et cetera. Um, I do a quick assessment of this infantry soldier. He's in shock, but he's got no holes in him, which is cool. Um, I'm pretty much out of the fight at this point. So I begin to go into medical treatment of myself. Open up the, the pant leg, see the damage. I can see the river of blood from where I was to where I had been hit originally. And I know right away my femoral artery is seven. Again, I go back into training. Uh, our medics did a phenomenal job leading up to that trip and throughout that trip of teaching us what to do. So I, I slap on a, a tourniquet, wrench it down. Um, eventually, some teammates come over. They render some aid as well. And at, at that point, I, I was convinced I was dying. Yeah. You know, I was convinced I was dying and I didn't want my teammates wasting time on me because I could look around and see there were bodies everywhere. And uh, I felt like it would be time wasted. And I wanted them to go work on someone who could be who could actually be saved. They, of course, ignored me. Um, they continued to work on me. I, I, I eventually had three tourniquets on, but I could still tell that I was bleeding. So in a basic last ditch effort of desperation, I grabbed some gauze, wound it up into what we call a power ball. It's just like a, like a gauze ball. Opened up one of the tourniquets, loosened it up, and just rammed the gauze into my thigh looking for that, that artery to pinch it off. And at this point, I really have no dexterity in my fingers. All my blood is kind of shunting inward to protect my organs. So I'm working with these like meat mittens. But I think I feel something... And I kind of just go with it. I press down as hot as I can. I re-tighten uh, the tourniquet. And at that point, I felt like I was done. Like I had, I had nothing really left to do for intervention. So I kind of just drug myself over to where some of my teammates were that were dealing with some injuries and felt like the, you know, the, the remaining time I had left on earth would be best suited uh, just trying to comfort them. 11 American casualties, two killed, another 12 Afghan casualties as part of this. What was worse, the injury, feeling like you're dying, or thinking, we trained that guy. I taught that guy how to use that weapon, and he turned on you. Yeah, it, it certainly added to the frustration. I can, I can say that. And uh, I, I've been asked, what's it like you know, laying on the battlefield dying? Um, and for me, it was, it was mostly content, which maybe sounds kind of crazy, um, but we had been through a lot on that trip. And if I was going to go, it I wanted to go in combat alongside my brothers. I felt some remorse, you know, obviously for my family and what they would experience. But then the frustration of how in particular I was would be killed was at the hands of someone that I had been working alongside of in training for six months. And that ended up just kind of superseding all of the other emotions where I was just really frustrated and angry out of all the gunfights and engagements and stuff we had been through that this was how it was going to end. Um, it's frustrating, you know, in that moment, you know, if we just fast forward briefly, you know, hospital recovery, I'm getting, I'm getting better, which we can certainly talk about in detail. Mm -hmm. um, but that, 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 that feeling of frustration towards that individual what went away and you know, we found out what really what happened, and it's a, it's a commonly used tactic amongst Taliban and others where they put these people in a really difficult position. It's, hey, listen, you're going to do this for us. You're going to die. We know that. Like, you're going to die. You're going to be a Mata, but we're going to take care of your family for the rest of their lives. Right. That's option A. Option B is we kill and rape your entire family right now in front of you. What's your decision? Right. And, you know, I put myself in that position. Like, what am I going to do? I'll tell you what. I'm going to do exactly what that guy did. I'm going to do whatever I can to protect my family and in that environment and others, they actually live up to their word. So they actually have that credibility of following through on that promise to look after the family. Um, so it makes it kind of a no brainer decision for that individual. 
and once I was able to put myself in, in, in that place, uh, all my anger and frustration towards him as a person, it completely went away. You're laying on the battlefield. You convinced you're dying, bleeding out, uh, but they're able to pull you off. <laughs> they're able to get you out of there. You flatline on the way to the fob, but they get you there. They get your medical attention. They're able to keep you alive, which is incredible. Um, and a lot has to happen throughout that entire process. At what point are you awake? And at what point uh, is the reality of, okay, I'm alive, but my leg's gone. Take me to that moment. Yeah. I didn't realize my leg was gone until much later. Um, maybe when I was in Germany, but certainly not in those earlier moments. Um, it took about a 60 to 90 minutes for the medevac bird to be able to land because it was an ongoing firefight. I mean, they were overhead within minutes, but they can't land because they can't risk the bird. And that makes total sense. So that amount of time with the femoral artery being severed, um, it does, it's not, it's not great odds, right. That you're going to survive. So it was kind of a miracle per se, um, perhaps that I even made it to that first med station, which had a forward surgical team look uh, at that location. And I do have memories of that original medevac bird. I have memories of being put on that bird. I have memories of being in that aid station and being drugged onto the table. Um, and then it gets really blurry from that point on. So I, I didn't know my, my leg was gone then, but I was somewhat shocked that I was still going. Um, and I've had conversations with some of the med staff, both in that first location and subsequent hospitals that was, I was at. And I was a difficult patient. I was, I was not um, well based on the listening story, to them earlier things here, Nick, it's not that surprising to hear that that would be the case. Yeah. But you know what? They all loved that because yeah. they knew that I was fighting it's and fine. I was, I mean, I, I was literally fighting them physically while they're trying to help me, but they knew they had a fighter, someone that they, that they could save because I was doing what I needed to do to save. So it's, it's awesome to hear from their perspective that you were, you were swinging punches at me while I was trying to administer an IV but that was a sign of hope for us that we could mm -hmm. save you because you wanted to save yourself. Man, that's, that's powerful. Um, th there's so much that has to happen between those moments and ultimately multiple surgeries to deal yeah. with the leg, but it ain't all smooth sailing through there. And there's a pretty powerful story tied into all that's happening to you in what was um, a bit of a misstep in essentially you got given the wrong blood throughout this process, right? They got to pump fresh blood into you to keep you alive. And they gave you the wrong blood. Tell me that story. And I know you don't talk about it a lot, but I've heard you talk about it a little bit, but there's a, there is a valuable lesson in here. Yeah, you're right, Brian. And, and that lesson is what has allowed me to share the story uh, more frequently because originally um, I really wanted to protect our our medical community and and and, and the, the average individual or the non-military or the non-medical trained personnel out there is going to ask like how does that happen there's no way that can happen um but it can and you know we, we live in a world of of mistakes and you know it is a human element to everything that we do and uh they switched up my name it was myself and my team sergeant we were both on that same first medevac bird we have very similar last names and um, they went with his blood type instead of mine, which is not compatible to mine. And um, everything shut down, you know, um, everything internal shut down. I was already really touch and go. And then that pretty much pushed it over the edge. They, they weren't sure what was wrong, but they knew I needed to get to Bagram, which had a high level of medical care. So that's when they threw me on another bird and they flew me to, Bagram, which was about a 10 minute flight. And while I was en route to Bagram, um, I coded on that flight as well. And then it, during that process, they realized what had happened with the blood. And I needed something like eight or nine units. I mean, it was a crazy amount. Yeah. So they loaded yeah. me with the wrong blood type. It wasn't, you know, a couple, a couple pints. I mean, they were jamming it in me and they realized what happened. And they made a phone call over to Bagram um, Hospital and said, yeah, this is what happened. We just pumped this guy full of the wrong blood type. It's incompatible. Um, there's no way he's going to survive the flight. So just be ready to, to, to take his body. Um, in, a, in a way, they were right. In a, in a way, they were wrong. But um, I got there. They got me right into surgery. 
they hacked off the lower portion of my leg uh, to minimize how much damage I was trying to recover from. And dialysis, another transfusion, uh, again, completely um, belligerent patient there as well. Uh, but I was still in the fight, man. And I don't really remember those moments at, at that point. But uh, I, I, looking back and having talked to some of these people who did treat me, um, you know, they knew I was there and I was, I was, I was going to keep swinging until I was completely out. There's two kind of major things that are happening to you here during the course of this, right? So the, the, the blood dialysis, right, to get the actual blood type back in you is hurdle enough. But then the constant battle of infection and addressing the leg and essentially having to operate and operate and operate on it to get it to a point where it can be stable. I want to talk about both of those two things that are happening and just how difficult they are. But also, it's pretty damn amazing, man. And, I, and I'm sure you've taken time to reflect on this and think back on it. The amount of work and effort that every single person involved in this did for you. For one person, we think about on episode two, we talked to Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, the amount of effort and resource, blood and toil that our nation was was able to put on the line to go rescue one Navy SEAL in Marcus Luttrell. The resources we will expend to take care of one of our own. How much have you thought about that? The amount of work they put in on you. It's amazing. It's um, It's humbling. And um, it makes me really proud to just be in this country and in this organization, in this military, you know, hours and hours and hours of work um, and resources to, to keep me alive and, you know, to keep me going and doing whatever it takes uh, to make that happen. Um, I owe a debt to them that I will spend a lifetime trying to repay. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost makes me speechless to even be able to quantify it into words, the, the level of gratitude that I have for them. And, and, and that's why, you know, I get the wrong transfusion. I, I, I held no ill will towards these people. I am indebted to them. Even the individual that physically put the blood into me, which I don't know who that is, but you know, that guy or that girl, I love that individual. That person is my hero. That person saved my life. Um, so just, an entire tidal wave uh, of gratitude and those individuals and what they do uh, are in, are in my mind constantly as I continue to drive forward today. And when that alarm clock goes off at zero four and I just want to throw it through the window, you know, a lot of times those people come to mind and say, no, 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 they did this, that they did this, they did this to keep you going. You owe it to them. Like get your ass up and get to work. I love it. All right. So dialysis alone could floor people while at the same time they've got to do multiple surgeries on the leg. And essentially what's happening is to stave off infection, they've got to keep taking more. They've got to keep taking more. What's that whole yeah. process like? Yeah. So again, Afghanistan, before I get medevaced out of country, they take off kind of my ankle. I get to Germany. Um, I, they had to wait about five, six days in Afghanistan before I was stable enough to make a flight to Germany um make it to germany they take my leg off up to the knee i'm only there one night and then i have at walter reed in bethesda maryland a uh, place that i call the greatest place in the world that you never want to see and uh, you want to talk about some angels man i mean i could go on for hours just about that staff and and how they live and what they do but i'll never forget i get off you know i get, I get pulled off the truck i'm in the intensive care unit i'm still really touch and go everyone's garbed up and my family's there um, they're all in masks and suits and, you know, biohazard suits, number five. And uh, my surgeon comes in and he looks at me and he says, hey, man, here's the deal. Your leg is a mess. You have bacteria and mold and fungus growing in you that could kill you. My staff wants to take your leg off at the hip right now and just eliminate the problem and get you going on with life. But I think I can save more of your leg. Um, it's going to be a street fight for both of us. And I need you in it with me. And I'm whacked. I'm on ketamine and Dilaudid. I barely know where I'm at, but I'll never forget this conversation. He's still a really great friend of mine to this day. And I look up at him and I said, yeah, doc, let's do it. He said, okay, sounds good. So it's basically Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm in surgery and they're just incrementally amputating higher and higher and higher and higher, cutting above the infection, pumping me full of antibiotics 
internal through IV and then just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, you know, inch by inch by inch. And that was maybe 30, 35 surgeries just on my right leg alone. Um, I had some damage to my left leg. Uh, my scrotum was lacerated. So I was dealing with you know some other minor, comparably minor injuries. And um, eventually got to a point where the, you know, the infection stopped, which left me with what I have now, which is about a four inch femur. Um, not very long, of course. And, you know, when you're as tall as I am, I'm six, five, six, six, you know, length is, is a big part of being an amputee. And the longer limb you have to work with, the easier it is to become functional again. And I'm dealing with this little tiny nub, uh, my quadriceps completely gone, my hamstrings completely gone. So it's just this, this little stump of bone and tissue that I have to work with, uh, which made, you know, the, the process for my prosthetists really challenging, you know, kind of once I got, once I got going down that road. So all that en ends up happening and essentially you've got, you're just staring at this recovery timeframe. First of all, just to be able to go back and, and kind of live your life, live a life, get a year of recovery at Walter Reed. You end up back at Fort Bragg. Obviously they offer you just a full medical retirement. What'd you say to that? Yeah, I wasn't interested in that. It wasn't an option. Um, I knew in the hospital at Walter Reed uh, really early on where I was going and getting back to the team became all that there was in life for me. That was it. Um, and I was obsessed with it, man. I was, I was obsessed with it. I was, I was a bit out of control. Um, at times I was reckless at times. I learned a lot mm. of, you know, moving too fast, trying to do too much too fast, but, um, that's where I needed to be. And, you know, the, the process is, was kind of iterative. It was kind of phased where the, you know, the beginning of that was very selfish and through, you know, through competitiveness and stubbornness is why I wanted to do it. I was going to prove everyone wrong and prove myself right. And that was it. And eventually, as I started making progress, I realized that it was, it wasn't about me. It was, there was a lot more at stake because I was trying to go back to a team with 10 or 11 other individuals and these individuals have families and they have kids. And when you're on an ODA, uh, you have to be able to pull your weight. They are putting their lives in your hands and vice versa. And in that moment, it hit me and I woke up 3 a.m. cold sweat. Holy shit. Um, is this the right move? Mm. Because is this what's in the best interest for them? And I had some really tough conversations, some very candid conversations with my teammates and with our leadership. And they were supportive. They said, hey, man, we don't know how this is going to work out, but we want you back. So keep keep driving and keep grinding, which, you know, is ultimately what I did. How long did it take from date of injury to essentially being back? And I know there's a process to get you back in, back to the teams, back down range. But what's that amount of time like in between that day and that attack and Nick's back? Yeah, so I was back in Afghanistan about two years from point of injury, um, which is really fast. It, it, you know, there's every injury is different. Every amputee is different. You know, you, I, I gather this data from this community that I'm thrown into. And, you know, most would come back yeah, about seven years, 10 years. Mm. It, it'll start to feel normal for you to be missing your leg. Um, so it's two years for me. I'm still learning basic life stuff at this point while I'm trying to get my body where it needs to be strength, speed, size, endurance, tactics, um, all happening at the same time, which, you know, again, if I wasn't as obsessed with getting back as I was, I don't think it would have been possible because I had to punt every other aspect of my life, including some relationships with some people. If you weren't on board with what I was doing, if you weren't supportive in providing me with something or just understanding what I was trying to do, then you were being removed. Any, every obstacle was being removed. There's no social engagements. There's nothing. You eat, sleep, train. That's it. Nonstop. And that went on for about eight months. While when I first got back to Bragg, I was working as a combatives instructor and a close quarters battle instructor. Um, so it was, it, that, that's all it was. And then I felt like I had a, I felt like I was in a place where I could give it a shot. So the assessment process took about three months. I was doing something, you know, maybe once a week or once every other week. 
And, you know, my command just kind of threw the kitchen sink at me. And there really See wasn't this got. laid out process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was unprecedented in a, in a way as far as an above the knee guy. There had certainly been above the knee amputees that have stayed in, stayed active, um, even gone back down range. But to try to get back to a team and go back into combat hadn't happened. So they really wanted to do their due diligence, of course. So it was a hey, do this assessment, do this test, do this go get another psych screening because we think you actually might be crazy for real. Um, that took about three months total. And um, yeah, then I was back on the team and they were already in their final train up for their next deployment. So it wasn't maybe more than three, four weeks after that, that uh, we were back in Afghanistan. You talked about that 3 a.m. moment, waking up in that cold sweat. Were there any moments along the way where you thought it wasn't going to happen, where, where, where quit crept in and where you thought, I don't know, I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to get there. It happened a lot, man. I don't, I don't think quit ever came to mind, but constant setbacks, constant setbacks and failures, one failure after another. And with, with every one of those, you know, it's even if it's only for a half a second, Hey, is this the right call? You know, and then you got to brush that shit up and you got to go right back at it, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was a roller coaster ride, but um, there was no, uh, there was no plan B for me. There was no, there was no plan B. I was all in, and I was going to ride this thing out until I broke completely, or if someone gave me the complete hard stop, this is not happening. And talking to some of my commanders and leadership that I had back then, that I maintain relationships with today, they were all supportive, right? Well, as soon as I got back to Bragg, what do you want to do? I want to go back to my team. They said, sounds good, right? And they were giving me the opportunity, take this test, do this, completely supportive behind me. Having conversations with them years later, a lot of them say the same thing where it was, hey, man, we we, we were supportive because we, we wanted to, you know, give back to you. You had earned the chance to go, but none of us thought we would actually get to a decision point on this thing. We all assumed at some point we're going to ask this dude to do something that he can't do or a light bulb is going to go off in his head where he decides this is not what's in the best interest for me and my family ultimately they did have to make that decision right 90 or so days later i finished my final physical assessment and the group command team was there battalion company about 50 people and um group csm at the time um came over to me and said you know what dude if i wasn't here to visibly see you do this assessment i would not believe that you were able to do it and i said and i'm, I'm almost blacking out at this point it was a brutal assessment I got no, no peripheral vision. And I said, thanks. Sorry, Major. I appreciate that. But, you know, you're going to let me go back to my team now. And he looked over at the group commander and he said, hey, CSM, this is your call. Um, but I think it's going to be really difficult for you to tell this guy no after what we just put him through. And he said, you know what, dude, your orders will be drafted tomorrow and uh, you're going back. And that was it. Badass, man. Uh, way to get after it and to persevere through that. Was there a moment when... You're back with the team. You're back deployed. Were there moments where you're like, I know I made the right decision? There had to have been some affirming things that happened out there. And were there moments where you had to kind of prove yourself again out there and things sort of ticked off? You're like, okay, I can do that. That was I was able to do that. Yeah, um, I had to prove myself every single day. And that, that this was in 2015. And again, it's a direct action mission. And we're moving all throughout Afghanistan at this time. So we're living out of rucksacks and not an ideal scenario for my first deployment back. Really, really challenging. And I, I realized very quickly that although I was training my ass off for months and months and months leading up, there were a lot of gaps that I had in my game, in my tactics, things I didn't think about, small knickknacky tasks like getting in and out of a vehicle. Um, getting up on the roof of a Matt V to reload a 50 cal, like just things I didn't comprehend to even begin to train on back then. And then you're in the moment and it's, oh, damn, OK, I need to get better at this. So we're running ops, we're moving around. And during any downtime I had, I would be just drilling on these menial kind of tactical tasks that had I had overlooked during my train up. And then in terms of feeling like I, I made the right call. Um, yeah, there, there were several of those moments because I realized during my recovery that while initially and leading up to that moment, I was mostly physical. That's that's what I really brought to the table. I was 80 percent brawn, 20 percent brain, but it was what I was good at. It was what my team wanted me to do. It was a win win. I realized I needed to 
balance that out with some of the other aspects of what we do and kind of increase my intelligence and my cerebral capacity to a higher level to make up the difference in what I would lose physically. There's no way I could train enough to be as physically gifted and dominant as I was with two legs. It's just not going to happen. That took a lot just to, just to accept that and then force myself to go to these military schools, civilian schools, broaden my education, broaden my capability in these different arenas that I wanted nothing to do with, even while I was learning it, uh, because I like the physical stuff. I like shooting and fighting and driving fast, right? So these other areas within Intel and within culture and within language, these other aspects of what make a Green Beret and an ODA effective, I invested a ton of time into developing those. So once we're on that trip and I'm able to actually put those skills and capabilities into action, was when I was like, okay, yeah, I am bringing value because that's really what it was about. It's, am I an asset or am I a liability? Am I bringing value to these guys or am I taking away from the mission? And as I'm able to employ some of these things was every time was just a, a reminder was, you know, hey, if you weren't here, you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, no one else on the team has these skill sets. They'd have to figure out a solution, but because you're here right now, you're able to employ that stuff, you know? So those moments existed, um, but it was, it was a, it was a six month trip of constant, constant work. There was no downtime because I had a lot of gaps. Again, I needed to fill. It's incredible to hear the way it all plays out. Um, I'm sure at the start of your military career, you couldn't have imagined it playing out the way that it did. You've also said, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. What does that look like today? What are you up to these days? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I, uh, I decided to, to transition to warrant officer, which I did. Um, been doing that now two years, and that's still a learning process. You know, you get put into that kind of formal leadership position. And you know, the military has a funny way of once you truly figure out how to do your job, it's time to go do something something else. So you're in this constant state of learning and it's like, oh, I finally get it. It's like, cool, you've been promoted. Hand it, off to, the, hand it off to the next guy. We need you to go hand do it off to the next guy. Yeah. yeah, so just about everyone you see in the military is all figuring it out in that moment, no matter who you're talking to or where and when. Um, so yeah, man, I'm still on the team. Just got back from a most recent deployment. Um, and yeah, I'm still, you know, I still look at what I do and what we do as a privilege. It's really tough to think otherwise, because it's it's a profession that you have to earn every single day. And it just, you can't commit less than that because of what's at stake. So I feel very blessed to be where I'm at and doing what I'm doing. And, and most importantly, doing it alongside the guys that I have the privilege to work with and really work for. Um, that's what That's what drives me most these days is the team and what's in the best interest of them and the ODA as a whole and getting up every day to go to work to improve on that um, is something that I still have an enormous passion for. If you had to go back and give up the leg again, would you do it? 100%. 100%. I talk about how the, the decision that I made in that moment is something that I use to demonstrate what not to do and that SOPs are there for a reason. Um, the only thing I would change would be, is, is there a way I can, you know, prevent the loss of, of other American life in that moment? Um, this is a paper cut compared to what some other guys and gals are dealing with these days. You want to talk about a humbling, eye-opening experience that brings you some perspective. Go hang out at Walter Reed uh, for a day or two. And, you know, yeah, I'm missing my leg. There are people out there missing all of their limbs. There are people out there that have such severe TBI that they don't know who their kids are, right? And I interacted with these people every single day. And I'm beyond grateful for those interactions and those relationships because it, it just demonstrated this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. They're going to give me a new leg. They're going to give me 12 new legs. I got a room full of them, right? Strap it on, figure it out, adjust your routine, adjust your habits, work your ass off, and continue to earn what it takes to be able to do this as a professional every day. Uh, that's, that's really it, man. And to be able to walk around in what is still the freest nation on the planet. It might not always feel like it in our worlds, but think about what Nick's talking about right now. 
strap it on, man, strap it on. And even if you're going through something hard, right? This guy on the other side of this line right now has gone through something hard. Maybe you got something hard going on in your life. Maybe you're battling addiction. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe all this, all the world can be thrown at you. If you wake up tomorrow morning and the morning after that, and the morning after that, and you take that breath and you put your feet on the carpet and you start the day, keep freaking moving. Keep moving. Well said. Tell me about these two boys. What do you do? What do you do with these two young men? What are they? There we go. Yeah. I'm glad we got to it, man. The highlight of my life. Yes, sir. Um, Yeah. So my oldest is four. He just turned four. And my youngest is about six weeks. Six Um, weeks. Yeah, man. You're right back in it. Two right, right back in it. Yeah. Two boys. um, Family's great. Boys are great. Wife is great. Um, I'm really enjoying the time that, uh, that I have here now. Uh, I came back early for their birth or for his birth. So my team is, is they're making their way back right about now. Um, and you know, doing what we do, you know, it, it sucks up a lot of bandwidth and it takes a lot of time. So any opportunity that you have to really just invest in that family time is something that, you know, we need to take advantage of. So I'm really enjoying that now. And, uh, life is good, man. I am, uh, I am truly blessed, uh, across the spectrum. And my family is at the top of that. And they're a daily reminder of why I do what I do, why we do what we do. Um, so, yeah, man, life is good. No complaints. I love it, brother. Uh, on behalf of all Pick Up the Six listeners, on behalf of a grateful nation, thank you for all you've done. And thank, thank you for all you continue to do. Nick, I have loved talking to you, man. I love uh, hearing your story and hearing about battling through adversity every step of the way. Hard things were thrown at you. People picked you up, which I know is important, and you found ways to keep fighting. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it, Brian. Good to talk with you. He's Nick Lavery. I'm Brian Jodis. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.